Chapter One of The Girl from Farris. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. The Girl from Farris's by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter One. Doherty makes a pinch. Just what Mr. Doherty was doing in the alley back of Farris's at two of a chill spring morning would have puzzled those citizens of Chicago who knew Mr. Doherty best. To a casual observer, it might have appeared that Mr. Doherty was doing nothing more remarkable than leaning against the telephone pole, which in itself might have been easily explained had Mr. Doherty not been so palpably sober. But there are no casual observers in the south side levee at two in the morning. Those who are in any condition to observe at all have the eyes of ferrets. This was not the first of Mr. Doherty's nocturnal visits to the vicinage of Farris's. For almost a week he had haunted the neighborhood between midnight and dawn, for Mr. Doherty had determined to get Mr. Farris. From the open doors of a corner saloon came bursts of bacchanal revelry. Snatches of ribald song, hoarse laughter, the hysterical scream of a woman. But though this place, too, was Farris's, and the closing hour long past, Mr. Doherty deigned not to notice so minor an infraction of the law. Hadn't Lieutenant Barnett filed some ninety-odd complaints against the saloon-keeper's alderman of the 18th Ward for violation of the same ordinance, only to have them all pigeonholed in a city prosecutor's office? Hadn't he appeared in person before the September grand jury, and hadn't the state attorney's office succeeded in bamboozling that august body into the belief that they had nothing whatsoever to do with the matter? And anyhow, what was an aldermanic drag compared with that possessed by Abe Farris? No, Mr. Doherty, had you questioned him, would have assured you that he had not been born so recently as yesterday that he was entirely dry behind the ears, that if he had got Mr. Farris at all, he would get him good and plenty, for had he not only a week before learned that Mr. Doherty was no longer in the good graces of his commanding officer, refused to acknowledge Mr. Doherty's right to certain little incidental emoluments upon which time-honored custom had placed the seal of lawful title? In other words, Mr. Doherty's words, Abe Farris had not come across. Not only had he failed in this very necessary obligation, but he had added insult to injury by requesting Mr. Doherty to hide himself to the celestial nadir, and he made his remarks in a loud, coarse tone of voice in the presence of pockmarked barkeep who had it in for Mr. Doherty because of a certain sixty, weary, beerless days that the pockmarked one had spent at the Bridewell on Mr. Doherty's account. But the most malign spleen becomes less virulent with age, and so it was that Mr. Doherty found his self-appointed task becoming irksome to a degree that threatened the stability of his Machiavellian resolve. Furthermore, he was becoming sleepy and thirsty. Tell with him, sighed Mr. Doherty, sadly, as he removed his weight from the supporting pole to turn disconsolately toward the mouth of the alley. At the third step he turned to cast a parting, venomous glance at the back of Farris's, but he took no fourth step toward the alley's mouth. Instead he dissolved, wraith-like, into the dense shadow between two barns, his eyes never leaving the back of the building that he had watched so assiduously and fruitlessly for the past several nights. In the back of Farris's is a rickety fire escape a mute decaying witness to the lack of pull under which some former landlord labored. Toward this was Mr. Doherty's gaze directed, for dimly discernible upon it was something that moved, moved slowly and cautiously downward. It required but a moment for Mr. Doherty's trained eye to transmit to his eager brain all that he required to know, for the moment at least, of the slow-moving shadow upon the shadowy ladder. Then he darted across the alley toward the yard in the rear of Farris's. A girl was descending the fire escape. How frightened she was, she alone knew, and that there must have been something very dreadful to escape in the building above her was apparent from the risk she took at each step upon that loose and rusted fabric of sagging iron. She was clothed in a flowered kimono, over which she had drawn a black silk underskirt. Around her shoulders was an old red shawl, and she was shod only in bedroom slippers, scarcely a suitable attire for street wear. 
but then people in the vicinity of twenty-fourth street are not overly particular about such matters especially those who elect to leave their bed and board at two of the morning by way of a back fire escape at the first floor the ladder ended a common and embarrassing habit of fire escape ladders which are as likely as not to terminate twenty feet above a stone areaway or a picket fence but the standpipe continued on to the ground a standpipe flat against the brick wall is not an easy thing for a young lady in a flowered kimono and little else to negotiate but this was an unusual young lady and great indeed must have been the stress of circumstance which urged her on for she came down the standpipe with the ease of a cat and at the bottom turned horrified to look into the face of mr doherty with a little gasp of bewilderment she attempted to dodge past him but a huge paw of a hand reached out and grasped her shoulder well dearie said mr doherty cut it out replied the girl and let me loose who are you anyhow for answer mr doherty pulled back the lapel of his coat disclosing a shiny piece of metal pinned on his suspender i ain't done nothing said the girl of course you ain't agreed mr doherty don't i know that real ladies always climb down fire escapes at two o'clock in the morning just to prove that they ain't done nothing go to pinch me depends said the plainclothes man what's the idea of this nocturnal getaway the girl hesitated give it to me straight admonished her captor it'll go easier with you i guess i might as well she said you see i get a swell offer from the beverly club and that fat shonaker she gave a vindictive nod on her head toward the back of Ferris's resort. He gets it tipped off to him some way, and has all my clothes locked up so as I can't get away. He wouldn't let you out of his place, eh? asked Mr. Doherty, half to himself. He said I owed him three hundred dollars for board and clothes, and he was keeping you a prisoner there against your will, purred Mr. Doherty. Yes, said the girl. Mr. Doherty grinned. This wasn't exactly the magnitude of the method he had hoped to get Mr. Ferris, but it was better than nothing. The present grand jury was even now tussling with the vice problem. Hours of its valuable time are being taken up by reformers, who knew all about the general conditions with which every adult citizen is familiar. But the tangible cases, backed by the sort of evidence that convicts, were remarkable only on account of their scarcity. Something seemed always to seal the mouths of the principal witnesses the moment they entered the grand jury room. But here was a case where personal spite and desire for revenge might combine to make an excellent witness against the most notorious dive-keeper in the city. It was worth trying for. "'Come along,' said Mr. Doherty. Oh, don't. Please don't, begged the girl. I ain't done nothing. Honest. Sure you ain't, replied Mr. Doherty. I'm only going to have you held as a witness against Farris. That'll get you even with him, and give you a chance to get out and take that swell job at the Beverly Club. They wouldn't have me if I peached on Farris, and you know it. Why, I couldn't get a job in a house in town if I'd done that. How would you like to be booked for manslaughter? asked the plainclothes man. What are you giving me? laughed the girl. Stow the kid. It ain't no kid, replied Mr. Doherty, solemnly. The police knows a lot about a guy that someone croaks up in Farris's in March. But we've been laying low for a certain person as is suspected of passing him the drops. It gets tipped off to the inmates of Farris's, and I being next, spots her, and she's making her getaway. Are you hep? The young lady was hep. Most assuredly, who would not be hep to the very palpable threat contained in Mr. Doherty's pretty little fiction? And, continued Doherty, when Farris finds out you've been trying to duck, he won't do nothing to help you. The girl had known of many who had gone to the pen on slighter evidence than this. She knew that the police had been searching for someone upon whom to fasten the murder of a well-known businessman who had not been murdered at all, but who had had the lack of foresight to succumb to an attack of acute endocarditis in the hallway of Farris's place. The searching eyes of the plainclothes man had not failed to detect the little shudder of horror that had been the visible reaction in the girl to the sudden recollections induced by mention of that unpleasant affair, and while he had no reason whatever to suspect her or another of any criminal responsibility for the man's death, yet he made a mental note of the effect of his words had upon her. Had she not been an inmate of the house at the time the thing occurred, and was it not just possible that an excellent police case might be worked up about her later if the exigencies of the service demanded a brilliant police coup to distract the public's attention from some more important case in which they had blundered? 
For a moment the girl was silent. How badly he had frightened her with his threat, Mr. Doherty had not the faintest conception. Nor, could he have guessed the pitiable beating of her heart, would he have been able to conjecture the real cause of her alarm. That the policeman would assume criminal guilt in her should she allow her perturbation to become too apparent she well knew. And so, for the moment of her silence, she struggled to regain mastery of herself. Nor was she unsuccessful. It wouldn't get you anything, she said, to follow that lay. For the report of the coroner's physician shows that Mr. that the man died of heart disease. But, cutting out all this foolishness, I'll swear a complaint against Farris if you want me to, if you think that it will get you anything. Though, and you can take it from me, who knows, it's more likely you'd get a prairie beat out Brighton way. There's many a bull pulling this box tonight out in the wilderness, who thought he could put one over on Abe Farris, and Farris is still doing business at the old stand. As they talked, they had been walking toward the street, and now Doherty crossed over to the corner with the girl and pulled for the wagon. What did it stand you to forget the guy's name, he asked, after they had stood in silence for a time awaiting the wagon's tardy arrival. They offered me a hundred, she replied. And of course you didn't take it, he ventured, grinning. The girl made no response. The newspapers were suffered an awful shock when they found the old bloke was one of the biggest stockholders in two State Street department stores, continued Mr. Doherty, reminiscently. They say his family routed the advertising manager of every paper in the city out of bed at one o'clock in the morning, and the three morning papers had to pull out the story after they had gone press with it, and stick in a column obituary telling all about he had done for the city and his fellow man, with a cut of his mug in place of the front-page cartoon. Gee, it must be great to have a drag like that. Yes, said the girl in a faint voice. Faintly in the distance, a gong clanged. Them guys is sure taking their time, observed Mr. Doherty. A little crowd had gathered about the couple at the police box, only mildly curious, for an arrest is no uncommon thing in that section of town, and when they discovered that no one had been cut up or shot up, and that the prisoner was scandalously sober, they ceased even to be mildly curious. By the time the wagon arrived, the two were again alone. At the station, the girl signed a complaint against one Abe Farris, and was then locked up to ensure her appearance in court the following morning. Officer Doherty, warrant in hand, fairly burned the pavement back to Farris's. It had been many a month since he had made an arrest which gave him as sincere personal pleasure as this one. He routed Farris out of bed and hustled him into his clothes. This, he surmised, might be the sole satisfaction that he would derive, since the municipal court judge before whom the preliminary hearing would come later in the morning might, in all likelihood, discharge the defendant. If the girl held out and proved a good witness, there was a slight chance that Farris would be held to the grand jury in which event he would derive a certain amount of unpleasant notoriety at a time when public opinion was aroused by the vice-question, and the mayor in a most receptive mood for making political capital by revocation of a few saloon licenses. All this would prove balm to Mr. Doherty's injured sensibilities. Farris grumbled and threatened, but off to the station he went without even an opportunity to telephone for a bondsman. That he procured one an hour later was no fault of Mr. Doherty, who employed his most persuasive English in an endeavor to convince the sergeant that Mr. Farris should be locked up forthwith, and given no access to a telephone until daylight. But the sergeant had no particular grudge against Mr. Farris, while, on the other hand, he was possessed of a large family to whom his monthly paycheck was an item of considerable importance. So to Mr. Farris he was affable courtesy personified. Thus it was that the defendant went free, while the injured one remained behind prison bars. Farris's first act was to obtain permission to see the girl who had sworn to the complaint against him. As he approached her cell, he assumed a jocular suavity that he was far from feeling. "'What are you doing here, Maggie?' he asked, by way of an opening. "'Asked Doherty. Didn't you know that you'd get the worst of it if you went to bucking me?' queried Farris. "'I didn't want to do it,' replied the girl, "'although that's not saying that someone hadn't ought to do it to you good and proper. You got it coming to you all right. It won't get you nothing, Maggie. Maybe will give me my clothes. That's all I want.' "'Why didn't you say so in the first place, then, and not go stirring up a lot of hell this way?' asked Farris in an injured tone. "'Ain't I always been on the square with you?' "'Sure. You've been as straight as a corkscrew with me.' 
Didn't I keep the bulls from guessing that you was the only girl in the place that had any real reason for wanting to croak the old guy, continued Mr. Farris, ignoring the reverse English on the girl's last statement? A little shiver ran through the girl at a mention of the tragedy that was still fresh in her memory, her own life tragedy in which the death of the old man in the hallway at Farris's had been but a minor incident. What are you going to tell the judge, asked Farris, after a moment's pause. The truth, that you kept me there against my will, by locking my clothes up where I couldn't get them, she replied. I was only kidding. You could have had them any old time. Anyways, there wasn't no call for you doing this. You got a funny way of kidding. But even at that, I didn't have any idea of peaching on you. He made me, said the girl. Who? Doherty? The girl nodded. Sure, who else? He's got it in for you. Farris turned away, much relieved, and an hour later a colored man delivered a package at the station for Maggie Lynch. It contained the girl's clothes, and an envelope in which were five germ-laden, but perfectly good, ten-dollar bills. The matron smiled as she opened the envelope. Some fox, she said. Some fox is right, replied the girl. End of chapter 1